Friends, we are looking at Luke chapter 4 as we continue working our way through this important, beautiful, challenging gospel together. I'm going to start reading in Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 14. Hear now God's word. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out throughout all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all who spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What you have done in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to, the, but only to Zarephath, to the land of Sidon, to the woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their city town was built so that they could throw him down from the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Let's pray together. Lord God, I pray that you would give us open minds, open ears, open hearts to hear your son Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit proclaim to us in the gospel, this is the year of the Lord's favor. Would we know and treasure that favor? We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's interesting in the gospel, we kind of hear even in our text that Jesus has been doing ministry. He's been in different places and he's already been teaching and preaching. But Luke, as God's inspired author, chooses this of all stories to put on the front end of Jesus's ministry to show us and to tell us what this ministry is going to be. It's been called the Nazareth Manifesto. This is Martin Luther nailing his 95 theses to the church door and saying, here I stand, this is my message, this is what I'm about, I can do no other. When he does this and says this, the people are furious and we'll see why. Not everybody is going to like what Jesus has to say. Jesus's message is this, good news of God's favor for everybody. 
good news of God's favor for everybody. I want to spend most of our time understanding this good news of God's favor, and then we'll spend a little bit of time on our second point, that this is for everybody. So let's think about the good news of God's favor. Jesus, we read a couple of weeks ago, was baptized down in the south in the Jordan Valley, and then he was tempted in the wilderness. Well, now he's come all the way back to Galilee. So if you're picturing Israel in your mind, you've got Judea in the south, and then you've got Samaria in the middle. That's where the Samaritans are that don't uh, interact with the Jews at all. And then up top, you have Galilee. And it's interesting that Jesus goes back up there, and then he spends virtually his entire life in Galilee. I mean, from his childhood to his working years to his early ministry, almost all of that time is spent in about a 25-mile area. The Savior of the world spends almost every waking moment in an area that's about as small as from here to Chapin. That's like the jurisdiction of Jesus during his ministry, which is wild to think about. And he started in his hometown, Nazareth, and that was a small village of about 400 people. But in and there somewhere, he moves over to a lakeside town, Capernaum, that has about 3,000 people. That's where he does a bunch of ministry. That's where he finds several of his disciples. In our passage, even though he's based there, he comes back to his hometown in Nazareth on a Saturday Sabbath, and he gathers at the synagogue with friends and family. Verse 16 says they go to the synagogue. We know at that time in a village that small, they might not have been able to afford a freestanding synagogue. So this could have been an open air worship service, but either way, he is there. And as was the custom, the ruler of the synagogue could read and teach himself, or he could give the scroll to anybody that he trusted to take the scroll. And that's what he does with Jesus. I was surprised to learn when our family were missionaries in South Asia, that was the practice in village churches. We would go and attend a village church and we try to kind of sit humbly in the back there to watch the worship service. And about during the last worship song, the pastor would come back and greet me and say, brother, welcome, good to have you here. Would you give the message today? And they don't want these like 25-minute Cola Press sermons. They want like an hour and a half of the word and I've got half a worship song to get it ready. I mean, this was terrifying. So it, it was done in Jesus's day, is done today. They hand Jesus the scroll of Isaiah, and we don't know if there was a lectionary that said, you're going to read from Isaiah 61 today, or he chose that on his own. But either way, John the Baptist has already been preaching from Isaiah 40 to prepare the way of Jesus. And now with all scripture available to him and all of Isaiah available to him, Jesus chooses Isaiah 61 to show forth himself, and he reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. We just read this. Jesus went to the Jordan Valley And when he was baptized, the Spirit of God descends on him like a dove. And at the beginning of chapter 4 that we heard last week, he comes out of that full of the Holy Spirit and led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to triumph over Satan. And after he does that, we read in verse 14 that he launches his public ministry, not just full of the Holy Spirit, but now in the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus 
is the Christ. That's not his last name. That's a title. It means anointed one. Jesus is God's chosen and appointed anointed one. Every red-blooded Jew who could spell the word Isaiah would know that Isaiah 61 was sacred messianic territory. Nobody touches this thing. Nobody claims this thing. Nobody reads this thing for themselves until that day of days when God's spirit-filled anointed one says so. And now Jesus the Christ, God's beloved son by the power of the Holy Spirit, stands up and says, the spirit of the Lord has anointed me. This is me. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Wow. Hundreds of years, centuries of prophecies, and here he is. Well, what exactly is he going to fulfill? What is he going to do? What is he going to say? That's what Jesus is announcing by choosing Isaiah 61. And you'll notice in verses 18 and 19 that Jesus doesn't say from Isaiah, I have come to die on the cross for your sins. That's true, but Jesus doesn't say that. And because he doesn't say that, we can't tune out right now and say, I know all of this because he surprises us and says something we don't expect him to say. He says, he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, when I look through what Jesus is saying, I see the words poor, captives, blind, oppressed, And I want to know, are we talking about the spiritually poor or the materially poor? You know what I mean? Are we talking about those without hope or those without homes? Those without the spirit or those without supper? Are we talking about the physically poor or the spiritually poor? What kind of people get the gospel? Who has Jesus come to save? And Jesus teases us with the answer. He doesn't give us a clear-cut answer to that. Hold Luke chapter 4 with your finger and flip over to Matthew chapter 5. This is how Matthew shows Jesus starting his public ministry with the Sermon on the Mount and in the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes. And so in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, we're looking for clarity and Jesus says... Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we say, aha, he's talking about the spiritually poor. That is who he has come to minister to. But hold that thought for a second. Flip back to Luke chapter 4. And then go ahead to Luke chapter 6, verse 20. Because Matthew tells us about the Sermon on the Mount, but, Jesus tell, but Luke tells us a different sermon that Jesus preached, the Sermon on the Plain. And in those Beatitudes, Luke chapter 6, verse 20, he says, Blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. 
So now I'm back to thinking it's the materially poor. I thought it was the spiritually poor in Matthew. Now I think it's the materially poor in Luke. But then Jesus goes on preaching the same message of John the Baptist, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so I'm back to thinking it's the spiritually poor. It's those who need to repent of their sins. But then throughout his ministry, he goes on healing and feeding people. And I think, well, maybe he's talking about the materially poor. Maybe that's what he's come to do. What? Gives, what is Jesus up to? Why is he being so vague? Would he just tell us if he is after bodies or souls? What is most important to him? Because there are fake theologies that have camped out in both extremes and they're looking for new members, okay? Listen to what they are. There's such a thing as a body theology. Sometimes it's called liberation theology. And it takes this precious grain of truth that Jesus actually cares for the materially poor, but then in its extreme version, it says liberation is salvation, that feeding the poor is the gospel, that to get out of poverty or from under oppression is the good news. And in its most extreme form, if all we have done is break the chains of the oppressor, all we have done is fed those who are hungry and we have not brought them this precious message of the gospel of a Christ who cleans souls, there will be full bellies in hell. That's not the gospel. But on the other extreme, there is a soul theology. And it takes that precious grain of truth that Jesus does care for the spiritually poor. But in its extreme version, it says a soul is all that matters, that this world and its structures and its workplaces and its balance sheet of debts and assets are going to burn anyway, so it doesn't really matter what you do with your body, it doesn't really matter what you do with your wealth, it's all about your soul, and in its most extreme form, there will be rich oppressors and slave masters and sweatshop owners and hoarders who know John 3.16 by heart but they have not bent their knee or their budget to Jesus and there will be full pocket books in hell that's not the gospel Jesus stands before this little group in Nazareth to declare the kingdom of God is at hand and it lays claim to body and soul under the jurisdiction of Jesus. And where Jesus has jurisdiction, body and soul, he brings good news, body and soul, the spiritually poor, the materially poor, will find good news in Jesus. For the bodies, he's born among the poor, and he spends almost all of his time among the materially poor. And he's got really, really hard things to say to rich people. And he doesn't use his miracles as magic tricks. He uses them to do real, actual good. He makes the blind see, and he cleans the sick, and he exercises demons, and he feeds hungry people who really needed something to eat. Jesus is good news for those who are materially poor. And for the souls at the same time, 
Jesus doesn't heal every disease, and he doesn't feed every empty belly, and he doesn't revolt against the unjust Roman occupiers. There are times he receives rich people like Zacchaeus into his kingdom, and there are times that he turns away the unrepentant poor like those who are in Nazareth right now from his kingdom because his kingdom is not ultimately of this world. He has good news for the spiritually poor, those without hope. And over all of us, whether we are poor in spirit or poor in spirit and in body, Jesus makes this pronouncement from Isaiah in verse 19, I am here to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's what I've come to do. Now, when he says that, unless we've memorized Isaiah, we might miss that Jesus is quoting Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, but he actually chooses to cut verse 2 in half and not say the rest of the verse. Isn't that unusual? I mean, usually you would say a whole verse, and Jesus, for his purposes, says, no, I'm going to say 1, and I'm going to say 2a, and then I'm going to stop right there, because if you look at it later, Isaiah 61, 2 says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of our God. When Jesus gets up to say it, he says the favor, but he doesn't say the vengeance. Do you see what he's doing here? I mean, already Isaiah was telling us about the kindness of God because he attributes the favor of God to a year, and he doesn't mean a calendar year. He means a season, an epoch, millennia. He's already attributing the kindness of God to the year and the wrath of God to a day, but Jesus one-ups Isaiah by saying, I'm going to tell you about the kindness of God, and for now, I'm not even going to mention that there's a day of vengeance to come. Why mention the day of God's wrath when the year of God's favor is standing right in front of us in the person of Jesus? Why would you weep or mourn or fast when the bridegroom is here? Why preach on the horrors of hell in the moment when the bright, shining glory of Jesus and his celestial city is standing right in front of us? You think this is a big year in America because it's an election year? Man, reform people know every year is election year. Every year, God in his favor is electing and redeeming and showing his unearned favor on those who will repent and believe and hold out their hands and his favor will rush upon them. This is the year of the Lord's favor or as the message translates it, This is God's year to act. And I'm going to sound like grandma at Thanksgiving when I ask, did y'all get some favor? Did y'all get God's favor this year? Because it's here and it's brimming. Did everybody get some? You guys on the outside sections, you who came in late, are you getting God's unmerited favor because this is the time of his favor to come and receive it and get seconds because the gospel is described as the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And if that's not what you're getting, come talk to somebody. If you haven't reached out and received immeasurable kindness in Jesus, Don't waste a moment. Ask someone what this means. 
I don't want anyone to leave here today without being full up of God's wide, lavish, full, undeserved goodness towards us in Jesus. Come get it. Come grab it. It is here. It is free. It is for you. That's the good news of God's favor. Let's close with just a moment talking about this being for everybody. Because I wish I could end here, but a crazy thing happens to people all throughout Scripture and today all throughout the church when God looks like he's handing out favor a little too far and a little too free. People go crazy over that. Now, a spiritually sane person would say, is God's favor, is God's grace, he can give it to anybody he wants, and who am I to interject and tell him what to do? But try telling that to the self-righteous older brother when the father is throwing a party for the prodigal son. People get angry about a grace that is too gracious. Isn't that crazy? People get mad about a grace that's too gracious. Mom comes home from the farmer's market, and she brings us a cookie. And she says, I'm going to split this with you and your brother. And you say, that's fantastic. I had no cookie. Now I have a half a cookie. Half a cookie is better than no cookie. This is amazing. Thank you, Ma. And then she begins to cut the cookie. And it looks like my brother is going to get 55%. And I'm going to get 45%. And all of a sudden, it's like, I will burn this house down. I, I will not stand for this. This is unjust. In other words, in my home and in the Nazareth synagogue, things escalate quickly. You can hardly track the conversation. It goes from everybody being thrilled about Jesus' gracious words to let's kill this man. That's what's happening in our passage. They marvel at his words but then they perceive that he is giving his grace and presence and miracles elsewhere. They're getting 55%. We're getting 45%. And so Jesus gives them a history lesson. And he grabs Elijah and Elisha, those giants, miracle workers of the Old Testament. And his lesson is this. God is going to give his favor as wide and as free as he wants to. And if you want proof, Nazareth, think about Elijah. In Elijah's day, there were plenty of materially poor people in Israel. And God doesn't send Elijah to any of them, but to a Gentile widow in a foreign land. That's whom he chooses to show his favor on. And in Elisha's day, there were many sick people in Israel, and God does not choose to heal them. He sends Elisha to their most bitter enemy, Syria, and he heals the general over that nation that has given them so much grief. And so he tells them and us, no one can presume on God's kindness, and no one can demand God's kindness, and certainly no one can tell God where and when and to whom and how he can show his kindness, which means as much as it will drive self-righteous people crazy, God will go on saving people who don't look worth saving. He's just going to dispense his grace that is wild and free where he will because this is the year of the Lord's favor. 
This is the year God acts rich and poor, Jew and Gentile, near from God, far from God. Romans 10, 12 says the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call upon him. Let's pray together. Lord, let us call. Let every person here call. Every person open wide our hands. Every person receive the lavish grace that is ours in Christ. This is the year of the Lord's favor. It is for us and for our church body and for all who call upon the name of the Lord. Let us come, let us run, let, it, let us receive it, we ask. In Jesus' precious name, amen.